welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Raf Donaldson, Assistant Professor of Law at the Pennsylvania State University Dixon Law School. We will discuss his draft article, Natural Punishment, as well as his other work on criminal punishment. So welcome to the show, Raf. Uh, hi, and thanks for inviting me, Brian. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, me too. I have always enjoyed your work on on criminal punishment and the kind of the philosophy of criminal punishment. And this work was certainly no exception. I saw you give a version of it as a paper quite some time ago, and it was really cool to read the uh, updated draft, which has a lot of new stuff in it. Uh, but for listeners who don't have the benefit that I did of previous exposure to this particular work and the concept of natural punishment, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what that is, how you define it, and sort of what natural punishment would look like in practice. Ah, okay. So I think the best way to wrap your head around natural punishment is to think of an example. So uh, in one example, a uh, young man is robbing a hot dog stand, and um, he's robbing it using a weapon. Um, he brandishes his weapon, takes money from cashiers at this hot dog stand and then tries to make his escape. He replaces the gun to his waistband, but in the course of his escape, it fires and severely injures him. Uh, and so what we have there is an example of uh, a kind of po poetic justice, as it were. Uh, this person is in the course of committing a crime and then you know, kind of receives some type of bad adverse treatment uh, as, as a result of his criminal activity. And so kind of more generally, natural punishment occurs when uh, someone, when they're uh, um, committing some kind of wrongdoing, legal wrongdoing, maybe a moral wrongdoing, um, they're committing the wrongdoing. And because of that wrongdoing, uh, they face an adversity. And that adversity is kind of caused by the wrongdoing. And importantly, not caused by someone trying to get retribution against the wrongdoer. So it's kind of important in that particular example that actually really happened um, that the injury that the wrongdoer sustained was this kind of thing that was caused by the wrongdoing and not, say, someone else who is trying to get retribution like the court system or, say, even the cashiers if they were to go after him or something like that. Th those would not count as natural punishments under the definition I developed in the paper. It's rather this thing that, in a certain sense, seems kind of accidental in a way. Yeah, I mean, I thought the analogy to poetic justice was really helpful, although it seemed like when you talk about natural punishment, I took it to be kind of a subset of poetic justice. Like we might use the term poetic justice to refer to some kinds of consequences that maybe wouldn't fit into the category natural punishment. Is that a right way to think about it? It may be. So some people think that uh, that poetic justice, there's, there's a little bit of literature about this. Some people think that poetic justice is the kind of thing that the, the punishment is somehow particularly fitting, or it's somehow like ironic that this particular adversity uh, befell the person, whereas natural punishment, as I define, is a little bit more broad. And so um, you might think that there's something particularly fitting about a robber um, getting shot with his own gun, or another kind of case that I develop in the paper, uh, an arsonist uh, gets set on fire, 
Um, so those seem particularly fitting. Um, but there are some examples that I develop in the paper that seem a little bit less, like someone is trespassing on some property uh, and then uh, gets attacked by an alligator that happens to be on the property. Uh, is that particularly well fitted in the way that a poetic justice? I'm, n I'm not as sure. Um, and some of the other things that I develop as examples also don't seem like they, they don't have the kind of irony um, that poetic justice seems to uh, entail. Um, so, yeah, so that's the sense in which I think you're right, Brian, that poetic justice might be a broader category. Well, so why should we think of natural punishment as punishment in the relevant sense at all? I mean, normally, I think when we think of criminal punishment, we think of something that the state is doing to someone as a consequence of their wrongdoing. Why doesn't natural punishment fall outside that kind of conceptual category? Yeah. So currently, uh, as, as you know, in the U.S., it does. Um, so there's a couple of reasons why I think the path that American courts should take is to kind of embrace it. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why. Um, first, um, we have in the kind of um, uh, philosophy of punishment literature developed these uh, justifications for punishing. Things like getting retribution, uh, specific deterrence, that is deterring that wrongdoer from doing this again, general deterrence, deterring other people from doing that kind of thing. Uh, communicative theories that say we're trying to communicate to the world at large that say this was wrongful or something of that sort. Um, these uh, purposes that we have for punishment, it strikes me that natural punishment can fulfill those things as well. So what it is that we're trying to do is something that natural punishment uh, is a, or purposes that natural punishment can serve. So for instance, it strikes me that um, the person who um, you know, shot himself in the course of robbery, he may now be deterred from trying to do that again. Uh, the same with the arsonist that I mentioned who set himself on fire trying to um, trying to burn down his estranged wife's new house. Uh, he may think twice uh, before doing this again. So that's the kind of retribution thing. Other people may then be on notice. Maybe you shouldn't do this kind of thing. Bad things can happen to you. Um, so that's kind of general deterrence. And it strikes me that if um, on a kind of retributive theory where uh, punishment is a kind of just dessert, it strikes me that there's an argument to be made that this is a kind of just dessert. Um, and so it's, it strikes me that on the one hand, um, we want punishment to do certain kinds of things. And it, and it seems like natural punishment can do those same things. Another kind of reason, though, why I think we should uh, at least consider it is that there are other nations that do already. Um, so the United States is, you know, just one jurisdiction that tries to think about um, punishment, but you know, jurisdictions around the world do, and some some jurisdictions are pretty explicit in that they um, recognize natural punishments as real punishments, and they accordingly discount the amount of, we'll call it, intentional punishment they're going to bestow because someone has already suffered a natural punishment. Uh, and the countries that I detail that have such policies include Germany, Sweden, and Australia. From a descriptive standpoint, is there any evidence that people in the United States at least kind of colloquially already think about natural punishment when they think about criminal culpability, whether in a kind of formal sense of being a juror 
or in a more kind of day-to-day sense of evaluating the justness of a particular outcome in a in a criminal circumstance. Uh, yes, I think there's a there's some, there's some uh, descriptive evidence of although it's limited. Uh, so for one thing, um, when some of these natural punishments occur um, and they're written up by journalists and whatnot, often there is a refrain that people use. You know, hasn't this person already been punished enough? One particular case that was um, that that kind of instances this. Uh, comes out of Baton Rouge um, a couple of years ago, where a young woman was charged with negligent homicide because she um, had improperly secured her infant in a car, uh, and the car that she was in was struck by a speeding car. The car was actually driven by an off-duty police officer. Um, So the car was struck and the infant was killed, and the... um, um, district attorney or city attorney rather decided to charge this young woman with negligent homicide. Um, and when this was being written up in the newspaper, um, you know, one of the refrains was, hasn't this person already been punished enough? You know, she lost her young child. Why additionally should she uh, be fined or go to jail for negligent homicide? You know, hasn't she been punished enough? There also is some, um, uh, kind of empirical data. Uh, there's a paper um, uh, that was written a couple of years ago um, where uh, Americans were surveyed about their attitudes regarding punishments uh, and what should count as uh, properly mitigating. Um, the paper uh, was published a few years ago. It's by um, Paul Robinson and some of his co-authors. Um, and in the kind of empirical study that they uh Conducted, they found that the American uh, respondents to their um, questionnaires did think that when certain kinds of physical harms and other kinds of harms befell people, people did think that these were properly mitigating. And so it's it, that provides at least some evidence that people do think of these kind of happenings as potentially punishments or functionally punishments that then um, um, uh, warrant us in discounting pun- uh, kind of intentionally uh, intentional punishment. Well, so in your paper, you suggest that courts ought to adopt natural punishments in at least some circumstances as mitigating factors in thinking about what, if any, kind of future punishment they ought to impose. Do you think courts can do this? And And if so, like, how ought they go about doing it? I mean, like, how is a court supposed to know whether or not a particular personal injury to a criminal defendant ought to qualify as a mitigating natural punishment? Yeah, so that's a hard question uh, in, in a way. Um, like, you know, how, how, you know, someone who sets themselves on fire, how much of a discount is that worth? Um so it's hard it's hard to make these kinds of calculations I admit but I don't think it should be insurmountable. It's already the case that courts deal with things that are supposedly mitigating factors and they assign some weight to them. Um I remember a case on which I worked when I uh worked in a law clinic um as a as a student and 
some one of the one of the sets of facts that we brought forward to the sentencing judge uh, were facts about the um, facts about the um, difficult childhood that uh, the the defendant had experienced. And the court came up with some reasons why this should be diff, uh, mitigating. And we talked about the youth of the offender and, you know, some weight was given to that. In this same way, it strikes me that judges um, or whomever is sentencing, maybe a jury, um, can come up with um, um, some type of discount for uh, the the events. Uh, it strikes me that pe people have judgments about what's more or less serious. Uh, people have judgments about kind of um, uh, what they otherwise might have given. Uh, and so they can combine those uh, to do that. Um, another kind of question uh, that's kind of related is like, how would how would this actually happen? Like, how would they come to know such so that they could make these, these value determinations? And how I imagine it is that it'd be introduced at, sent at the sentencing phase that the court would have to find by, say, preponderance of the evidence that the natural punishment occurred. And then armed with this information, they'd be required to do some discounting of the of the punishment. So that's how, kind of how I imagine it. And we and we might also think, I mean, I, this isn't a necessary part of my proposal, but we might also think that legislatures might offer some guidelines uh, as they already do with respect to giving punishments. Um, they might offer some guidelines about what kinds of things uh, count, how much they might count for, kind of roughly. Uh, those are things that we, we could imagine happening as being part of the proposal. Yeah. I mean, I think the example you gave there was really interesting because I couldn't help but think while reading the paper about the penalty phase of a death penalty trial, where there's really a, a very explicit encouragement, if not obligation, to consider factors like the kind of childhood and background of the offender in determining whether or not imposing the death penalty is appropriate. And it uh, it did seem to me as well that this was sort of like a version, like a very limited version of what you were describing in terms of thinking about mitigation. And, and maybe this is sort of a suggestion to sort of broaden the scope of what we consider. Precisely, precisely. That's exactly it. Uh, because in the death penalty phase, uh, as we know, with death penalty sentencing, you have to find certain aggravating factors in order for it to be imposed. Because our thought is it has to be imposed on the worst of the worst. Well, you have to find that things are worse than just this, um, it's just a homicide. Similarly, the court has, as you, as you note, uh, explicitly said for children, children can't get the death penalty at all. But um, even for giving them life sentences, um, an explicit encouragement by the court has been made that um, the um, sentencer has to uh, consider uh, the youth and, and, and think about how this might be discounting uh, or mitigating. And so um, since courts are already in the business of doing this kind of rich uh, reflection on um, how important certain kinds of disadvantages are to what punishment we ultimately mete out. It strikes me that this isn't any more difficult. It's just uh, encouraging a wider uh, appreciation of facts. 
Well, so in your conception, should any kind of injury experienced by a criminal defendant count as a mitigating natural punishment? Or is there some additional principle that you think the concept requires in order to sort of cabinet or limit it or kind of rationalize it in terms of the justifications that you're providing specific to natural punishments? Uh, yes. So I, I do think that there are some things, kind of a certain number of qualifications that have to be present. So one of the things I talk about pretty explicitly is, um, first of all, like we, the concept of natural punishment is broad enough to think of all kinds of wrongdoing. And obviously we're limited to talking about kind of um, legal wrongdoings. Another thing is um, we have uh, for this to be justified under the kind of rubric of natural punishment. It really does have to be that the wrong that the adversity faced by the legal wrongdoer um, is really caused by the wrongdoing in some way. That that is part of the cause uh, and not. Um, more explicitly, a cause that the, the cause being someone's, you know, intention to get retribution. And so I am pretty hesitant to think of, say, someone who decides to um, punish themselves for uh, the wrong that they do, say, because they're racked with guilt or something like that. I'm less inclined to think of that, that as an instance of natural punishment. Um, there, there are others who use the term uh, natural punishment who are inclined to um, to broaden it in that way. But I, I think that there are various reasons not to push in that direction. Um, also, I'm um, much more skeptical about instances of vigilante justice as those being being kind of counted under the rubric. So suppose someone is, um, you know, attacked because of the wrong that they've done, um, I'm less inclined to think that that's a natural punishment. Um, now, th there may be reasons to discount um, the, the punishment that they ultimately receive, but part of the reason why I'm a little bit hesitant is um, I think that those sorts, there's a couple of reasons, but one reason I'm a little bit hesitant is that with, say, vigilante justice, um, you know, the the court system shouldn't uh, condone uh, that sort of behavior. And by saying that this just counts as part of the legal punishment, it, it seems a gesture in the direction of condoning vigilantism, which um, it shouldn't. And so it seems like if there's an argument to be made that those sorts of things should mitigate, I think, you know, that's, that's an argument for another day. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't include those sorts of things either. Um, I also think that the harm has to be sufficiently serious. So I, I think um, the claim can't be, you know, I just, you know, I, I felt a little bad after I done, I've done this thing. And so that's, that should count for something. I, I think it should be pretty serious, the kind of thing, even if the harm, it doesn't have to be always physical, someone setting themselves on fire or, you know, shooting themselves or something like that. But if we're going to count a psychical harm, I, I would think it has to be pretty serious, like really serious, in fact. One kind of fact pattern that I remember is a case out of Germany where there was a um, medical professional who um, gave someone the wrong, um, the wrong blood during a blood transfusion. 
Uh, and this person was then charged with negligent homicide. Um, but it wasn't just that she felt bad. She um, had a nervous breakdown. She ended up having to quit her job. Um, she was like in treatment for months after this. Um, she couldn't continue working as a medical professional anymore. Um, and that, so this, that, that seems sufficiently serious that like it's worth the court's time and attention, uh, but kind of, you know, more transient types of psychical harms, I think aren't probably worth, uh, this kind of discounting. But what about criminal defendants who experience really, really severe natural punishments? I mean, A, how should courts think about natural punishments that might actually exceed the punishment either in scope or kind that they would otherwise be able to impose under the circumstances? And does that complicate our understanding of those kinds of injuries as natural punishments caused by or related to a particular act of of wrongdoing? Yeah, so that's that's one of the puzzles around about this proposal. Um, uh, it, it seems like um, there are possible natural punishments that far exceed kind of what the Constitution will permit us to do. Uh, maybe the arson case that I mentioned is one of them. Um, uh, setting somebody on fire for an attempted arson. Uh, is probably constitutionally excessive. So my thought about this is that um, the the court systems, so when this is, say, brought up during um, sentencing, um, the courts can embrace no more than the constitutional maximum. So if we could kind of, as it were, uh, divide up the kind of badness of the natural punishment into kind of component parts or something like that. Um, And say they were kind of scalable or something like that. So there's like 50 units or something like that or what somebody deserves at most for an instance of arson. Uh, And, you know, setting yourself on fire is like, you know, a hundred units of badness. It strikes me that the courts kind of can't embrace all of that uh, as its action. So that that's that's the kind of thought I have. Now it might seem like you know unmotivated and ad hoc to say something like that, um, but the thought that um, um, what we can ascribe to the state is just like the limits of what it's permitted to do, and anything else is kind of not the doing of the state. Uh, weird as that it, it may sound, it actually was a legal doctrine for part of the United States history. So um, it used to be the case uh, before, say, um, Section 1983 and these civil rights statutes that allow us to sue uh, government actors for constitutional rights violations. It used to be that how you would, say, uh, uh, sue, say, a police officer for um, excessive force, there was no, you know, uh, bringing a civil rights action against them. Instead, you'd sue them for, say battery or something like that um and then the and then the next thing that they would claim is that um you know they were acting in uh uh you know according to their duty their 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 duties and then you would be able to bring a claim saying that they they actually violated uh the constitution in acting in this way 
And then the, 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 the kind of next phase of the argument would be that, well, if it indeed would have exceeded that person's constitutional duties to have used this amount of force in that particular situation, then that's not a doing of the state. And so that's how then you're free then to sue them or recover damages, say, from the um, uh, police officer. And so this kind of thought that, like, we can only ascribe to the state what things the state may do isn't a really foreign idea in American law. It actually was a prevalent idea in American law for most of American history. And so this thought is what kind of informs how I would uh, respond to the worry about excessive natural punishments, that we'd only ascribed to the state or the state can only embrace the part of the natural punishment that actually um, would be within its limits to do. Well, so I, I also kind of wonder, do you think that your concept of natural punishment that you're outlining in this paper is perhaps more consistent with some normative justifications for criminal punishment than others? I mean, I guess it just struck me that it had a certain kind of retributivist tinge to it and that the kind of randomness element to it made it maybe line up a little less well with more consequentialist theories of criminal punishment. Am I missing something? Uh, no, I, I would hope that you're incorrect in that assessment, but I don't think you're saying anything. So, um, so first, I guess I'll back up and talk a little bit about retributivism versus consequentialism. So, um, at least as I've always thought about it, all theories of, of punishment are retributive in a certain sense. They all are attempting to get back at somebody for a wrong. The question about the justification of punishment is, why should you get back at somebody for a wrong? Like, what is that for? Um, the person who's retributive in the kind of strong or at least justificatory sense, they say the reason why we get back at people for wrong is because they deserve it. Like, that's just what they deserve. Someone who's a consequentialist will say that there'll be some particular uh, good consequence that will follow from us getting back at people for their wrongs, whether it's that we'll have an opportunity to educate them about what's right. You have this kind of educational theory or we'll um, deter that person from doing this again or we'll deter other people from doing it in the future or we'll communicate that um, such and such is wrong, say. Uh, so th that's th those are th that's how I understand the kind of justification talk. So my thought is um, when, an, when an instance of natural punishment happens, um, um, we can all look at that as something that possibly could serve the role of just giving somebody what they deserve. So they could, so if we have our kind of retributive theory in the justificatory or strong sense, um, we, we could think that, but also we could have this kind of, we could have some of these other consequentialist thoughts as well. So for instance, it strikes me that when a court says, uh, under my model, um, we're going to let uh, that, you know, the person who shot themselves, that the, the injury that they, that they um, sustained, we're going to let that serve as their punishment. Um, and, and the court says that and makes that clear that that's what they're doing. It strikes me that that can serve some of those consequentialist uh, purposes. So, for instance, um, uh, if that's reported in the newspaper the next day, 
um, somebody might be deterred. Someone might think, you know, I never even thought about a, a possibility if I were to try to steal something with a weapon that I could myself get a serious injury. Um, that's something that someone might do. So that might serve the purpose of general deterrence. Now, of course, one might respond quite reasonably, well, how well will that <laughs> generally deter? It might not do so very well. And I guess my response would be, well, maybe prison doesn't generally deter very well. Um, no, no punishment has to perfectly uh, uh, fulfill the purpose for us to recognize it can fulfill the purpose, at least somewhat. Um, there are people who are not going to be deterred by prison. That doesn't mean that it's not a deterrent. And similarly, it strikes me that um, being notified that these sorts of things can happen um, can serve as a deterrent. Um, and similar with the kind of communication theory, uh, if we want to communicate that such and such thing is wrong, you might think when these sorts of bad things happen um, and they're, they're announced, you know, somebody tried to get back at their ex-wife or their estranged wife, and then they ended up, you know, getting set on fire uh, and sustaining third degree burns over most of their body. Um, uh, the, the, and the court kind of embraces that and says that what I think that does do, what that would communicate to most, uh, who, who hear that kind of story, like, well, that guy got what he deserved. Like people shouldn't do that. Uh, obviously it is wrong. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing is in story you know, in, in kind of fairy tale. That's why I kind of poetic justice devices are in fairy tales. They actually, they, they do work in communicating certain values. Um, so it's that, you know, these these various purposes can be served by natural punishment too. Well, so in a perhaps related vein, you noted explicitly in the paper and early in our conversation that you kind of set aside vigilante justice and so on from the scope of what you're talking about in the context of natural punishment. But I wonder if there's like a middle ground or kind of a, another category, like say, for example, the state imposes at least ostensibly like non-penalty based conditions onto a criminal defendant, like for example, like sex offender registration or something like that, which, you know, might even theoretically have some sorts of rehabilitative elements uh, that accompany it. But as a consequence of that non-penal condition, a person suffers considerable harms, social harms, once they're uh, released and living in in the community. do you think those fit in the context of what you're talking about at all? Or do you still think that those would be a different category of harms that we ought to think about uh, independently from the kind of phenomenon that you're describing? Uh, yeah. So this is a great question. It actually ties in some of my, some of my earlier work. So I still uh, would think uh, natural punishment doesn't quite seem like the term for that, but I think we should revisit um whether this is just plain old ordinary punishment. Um, so um, the court has actually you know, addressed this uh, specifically, uh, I believe the case is uh, Kansas v. Hendricks, about um, whether sex offender registration uh, counts as punishment. And um, 
I'm inclined to think that the court maybe got this one wrong. Um, because uh, I don't know that the court had um, particularly strong reasons not to count this as punishment, because it certainly is the case that um, the court opposes registration um, requirements um, in order to um, uh, redress uh, a wrong that's been committed. Uh, so there are some some states that have um, um, certain kinds of uh, incapacitation, even if you haven't committed a crime yet, if you're deemed sufficiently dangerous. Uh, but if we're talking about someone who's already done something and that's why they have registration requirements, eh, this is already moving us, I think, in the direction of thinking that maybe this is a punishment. Um, certainly, um, some of the registration requirements are extremely onerous. Um, it's not at all clear. In fact, uh, it's 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 very much in dispute whether these registration requirements actually serve the purpose of making any communities safer, um, like directly. Uh, maybe they have some deterrent effect, but maybe not directly. It strikes me that there's various reasons to think that this these might just be regular old-fashioned punishments and not a special category of natural punishments. Um, and the court should treat them as such. Um, so Justice Stevens dissenting in the Hendricks case specifically argued this, that um, these um, uh, registration and additionally in, in Hendricks, uh, there was involuntary incapacitation uh, that followed um, certain kinds of um, um, convictions for sex offense, uh, sex offenses. And it strikes me that these very well may be punishments. So I, I, I think kind of more generally that a lot of these supposed collateral consequences of punishment are general, uh, are genuine instances of punishment in the first place. Well, so Raf, in, in closing, it strikes me that a lot of your scholarship has focused on the sort of concept of punishment, what we mean by it and how to think about it in a kind of normative social sense. In other words, you know, who counts as a punisher, what counts as a appropriate punishment and why? And in, in this paper, how should we think about in collateral injuries in a mitigating sense? I was wondering if you could talk kind of more specifically um, about how, if at all, you think that the concept of natural punishment you discuss in this paper ought to inform the way we think about the concept of punishment and its purpose more broadly. Generally, uh, to kind of speak generally first, uh, the project that I've been on and the various papers is that I, I see punishment in a lot more places than courts have been willing to recognize, that lots of things can serve the purposes that we have in mind um, and, uh, lots of things then, you know, should, uh, lots of people can serve the purpose of punishment or do, uh, serve the purposes of punishment that we have in mind. And so that we really should broaden our, um, broaden our horizons and thinking about what, what really counts as punishment. And I think when we do, when we start to see that all we, all sorts of things happen to wrongdoers, um, that they may see as um, uh, as punitive, that may reform them or hurt them or deter them from doing things. That once once we once we kind of broaden our horizon, see that there are all these different ways that 
people can suffer punishment. My hope is that we will then reduce the amount of punishment that we bestow. So um, to kind of mention one uh, kind of direct implication, um, in this country, we've been talking for the past, I'd say, decade about um, the, the problem of mass incarceration, too much punishment. And sometimes some kinds of responses to this have been, why don't we decriminalize certain kinds of things that perhaps ought not to have been criminalized in the first place, uh, like the possession of drugs? And um, there have been various studies that suggest that even if we um, uh, decriminalize possession uh, or even decriminalize a lot more things with respect to drugs, we still would incarcerate at, at rates far higher than almost any other developed nation on Earth. The, the issue, so it seems to me, is that even for more serious things, we punish too much. Um, and one way that we might reduce is to recognize that there already are so many, so many bad things that we visit upon um, wrongdoers that, like, uh, we've already done enough. We, we, can, um, we can pull back. And still rest assured that those of us who think we have obligations to punish, that those those obligations are being met in other ways by things that we just don't term punishment under our kind of current conceptual framework. And so it strikes me that like one upshot of adopting the various uh, proposals that I have offered over the past couple of years is that we'd see that we have already met our obligations to punish and we can pull back. And, and then stop or at least limit um, our tendencies toward mass incarceration. Well, Raf, thanks so much for coming on the program today, talking about this great paper and the rest thanks for having me. of your projects. Yeah, no, it was a real pleasure. And uh, I look forward to reading the final version and hopefully to having you on the show again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. How will I rate 
when my judgment day is at hand. Help me, O oh Lord, to be kind and meek. Give me strength and show me the way. Fill up my heart with the love I see So I can deserve each day What have I done to deserve this day? Have I earned the sunshine above? I'd like to know Fill up my 